Our sermon today is taken from Ephesians 2, verses 18 to 22. This is the word of God. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Friends, let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we come before you as humble servants formerly strangers and aliens, formerly in the dark, and yet you in your grace have not left us to our own devices, but rather you have called us for yourself. You have told us, no longer will you live in your sin, no longer will you no longer be my people, but you would now be mine. You will now have mercy. We will now receive mercy. For in your grace you have substituted for us your son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. Father, help us now see the privileges, the responsibilities and duties in light of that sacrifice as we think more about the priesthood of all believers. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, welcome again to Covenant City Church. Last week we began a new series, and that series is on the theme of the priesthood of all believers, the priesthood of all believers. It's a reformational theme. Um, brought about by the Protestant Reformation, and according to the priesthood of all believers, it emphasizes uh, numerous uh, things, but, but it emphasizes for fundamentally, for example, that every believer in Jesus Christ is fundamentally equal in Jesus. We have all the same status as priests. We have all the same status as saints. We are all called to be holy together. We have equal status entirely. We also have an equal responsibility, therefore, as disciples of Christ. We have an equal responsibility to live out the gospel, to communicate the gospel, to make sure that people know that we are representatives of Christ's kingdom. Therefore, nobody gets a free pass. It's not as if, again, like we mentioned last week's in last week's sermon, that that you know, being a Christian or being a full-time minister is just a vocational thing, or being a priest is about a, a vocational thing. No, it's fundamentally, according to the Christian faith, according to the Bible, about who you are. In other words, after you've become a Christian, it's fundamentally become the center of who you are, your very identity, is that you can't help it but to communicate to others about who you are in Christ, but to communicate to others the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the light, as we saw last week. Right? We saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10 to last week that every single Christian is called to be a priest, a, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, citizens of a new world, citizens of a new kingdom, representatives of God in a unique way in this world, ambassadors of Christ. That's something that we are. It's not a vocational thing. It's not as if some people get a pass and then we can now say, those people up there, they are going to be the ones representing God here and we're just you know, watchers. That's why we, we communicate that in our, in our liturgies. We rise up and we speak out loud statements of faith together. We communicate that we're all worshipers and representatives of God equally here. And therefore, if we're all priests, we're all saints in God, we also have unique privileges. We have access to God the Father, as we're going to see. 
We have communion and fellowship with one another. We suddenly now have a new family with one another. We're members of one another. And that's an amazing thing. We have total equality, um, equality in responsibilities, and equality in, in privileges. And so what we want to do in this series, as we have uh, you know, covered last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, and this week we're going to cover um, Ephesians chapter 2, 18 to 22, is we want to communicate to us as a church, not just this concept, this understanding, this theology of the priesthood of all believers, but we want to be able to make sure that you come away after this week, after the next few weeks, as the series is going through, we want to make sure that you come out of these services and you're able to say not just, here's what the priesthood of all believers means, but also point to specific biblical texts where this is taught. We want you to be able to come out of here and not just communicate the priesthood of all believers is true, but also say the priesthood of all believers is true, and we know this from 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and maybe in the coming weeks, Acts 15, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We want to be able to make sure that your theology is not rooted in something fancy that the elders made up. And something new that we want to make sure that we communicate as a church to just communicate newness for newness sake. But rather, we want you to be convicted about this doctrine because it is a neglected doctrine in this city. And be able to come out away from these services and say to yourself, say to other people, here is what the Word of God actually teaches. It's not about the authority of the elders on this. It's not about the, the, the distinctiveness of this church on this. But rather, because your conscience... It's tied to the word of God. You want to be able to live this out. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what Christianity teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. So we want to be, sure, be able to make sure that we not only know the reformational Protestant concept of the priesthood of all believers, but also the biblical roots of that. And that's why we're going through scripture passages every week that communicates this. So 1 Peter 2 last week, and now Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. We have five points for today's sermon, five points in these short verses, five points from five verses, all right? So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, communicates to us five things about the priesthood of all believers. First, the priesthood of all believers means you have access to the Father. Every one of us has equal access to the Father. Secondly, the priesthood of all believers means that now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but equally saints, equally saints, members of the household of God. Third, the priesthood of all believers means you're all standing equally on the word of God as your foundation. The Bible is your main authority. The Bible is your foundation. Christ alone is your cornerstone. That's a glorious truth. Fourth, the priesthood of all believers means that you're all equally indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is more at work in one place or another of the church, but rather the whole church is indwelled equally by the Holy Spirit. And finally, we're going to learn how we became priestly saints or saintly priests. All right? So let's go through them one by one, okay? First, the priesthood of all believers means we all have equal access to the Father. And we get this from verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 2, our first verse for today. It says this, For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So it's saying here that through Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, the first thing we've got to ask there is who does the both refer to? 
It says there that we both. So who is Paul referring to there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, when it says that we both have access to the Spirit and, and to the Father, therefore, in one Spirit? Well, the both there is a reference to both Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. Anyone who's a Jew now, because of Jesus Christ, has complete access to the Father. And at the same time, if you're a Gentile, if you're not a Jew, if you're a Roman, if you're a Greek, if you're an Asian, if you're an European, in other words, any race, ethnicity that isn't Jewish. That's what a Gentile means. Both Jew and Gentile now have equal access to the Father, and that's significant for both Jews and Gentiles. That's significant for Jews, because all the way throughout in the Old Testament, the whole understanding of the Jewish priesthood, of the Jewish religion, was this. Was that there was a temple and an outer court, and inside this temple, in the inner court, in the Holy of Holies, the center core of the temple, is the dwelling place of God. That's where, so to speak, you can meet God uh, in a personal way, in a direct way. But to gain access to this Holy of Holies, there were multiple layers of the outer court. There were walls. There were literal dividing walls that put you away from God. And the only people, the only people according to the Old Testament religion, according to the Old Testament Old Covenant ways of God, is if you became a priest and you represented the people, and only the priests who wear the holy garments, who've been washed, who have their own unique laws and codes and ritual offerings and your own ritual washings, only they could have access to God. Only they could have access to God. And so in a real sense, the Jewish people of the Old Covenant had to depend on a quote-unquote a higher class of people, the priests, so to speak, right? They were, they were a distinct class of people. They're set apart by God, and they were the ones who were representing the people to be able to have access to God and have, you know, entrance into the Holy of Holies, the center of the temple. And here's why this little passage, we, we often just read this like it's nothing, right? We have access to the fathers, absolutely significant. Here's what Paul is saying to the Jews at this point. Friends, you have no more need of a priest, the walls that divided you from God, that put you away in the outer courts, that put you away from the Holy of the Holies, that's severed. You have complete access to God. No longer now do we need an Old Testament priesthood. Now we have complete access to God, and not only access to God, every single one of us can call God as Father. God, you can call God as Father. No longer simply God in the generic sense, but God as Father, and that was absolutely unique for the Gentiles. Because according to the Roman religions, according to the pagan religions, they worshiped many gods, that whole host of gods, but they never had a relationship with these gods. It's kind of like, you know, again, I've used this example before, when you went to Bali, and you were eating in these restaurants, and you're going to these villas, and they made sure that they had little offerings to the little, you know, tribal gods. And they made sure that if the gods are at peace, everything's going to go well with the house, everything's going to go well with the business. They had these business transaction types relationship with these gods, but they didn't have a personal relationship with them. They wouldn't, you know, weep in awe. And it's the same way in the ancient world, they did not have a relationship with God as Father. There was a uniquely revolutionary new idea in the second century where suddenly now Christians are saying to the world, are saying to the fellow Jews, saying to the Romans, to the Greeks, to the pagans, to the Gentiles, those who are living really in, in debauchery, worshiping many different idols, they were saying to all of them, 
you're now welcome, very welcome, to have access to God the Father. It's not as if somebody out there has more access to God than you do. You have direct access. You're no longer dependent on someone else and say, you know, you need to pray for me because my prayers aren't being heard. Because in Jesus, I can have access to God. You're no longer dependent upon a priestly class to have access to God the Father, but now you have direct access, you have direct communion and fellowship with God as your Father, no longer simply as your boss. So you don't have to be worried that He'd ever abandon you. You know, if you treat God as you would a boss, you know, how many times can an employee mess up before the boss fires him? Not long. But you ask, you know, how many times can a child mess up before their parents abandon him? You say, never. I will always love you. You have access to me. Come to me in Jesus Christ. So every single one of us, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, this text is teaching us, fundamentally you have access to God the Father. That's the first thing we got to note there. First thing about priesthood of all believers, every single believer has access to God the Father. Your prayers are heard. You have no more need of an intermediary. You don't need any other mediator. You have him in Christ Jesus. The second thing we need to note, Second point, the priesthood of all believers means that we're all equally saints. We're all equally saints. Look at verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. All right? That's remarkably significant. Every single one of us who are in Christ Jesus are fellow saints. So, so notice the narrative here. Every single Christian, friends, what this text is teaching us, every single Christian has the same basic autobiography. They have the same basic life narrative. Here's the narrative of a Christian. It doesn't matter when you were converted. It doesn't matter when you became a Christian. It doesn't matter what your past life was. It doesn't matter who you are now, what your vocation is, this is a matter of identity. Every single Christian has the same biography, has the same identity. Here's your basic biography. Here's your basic history, your narrative. You were once strangers and aliens. You were once far away from God. You were once having no God in this world, in darkness. You were once aloof and a stranger unto God. You have no relationship with Him. But now, look at that transition in verse 19. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're equally saints. Now, this is absolutely significant because as texts like this, and texts like 1 Peter 2, as we saw last week, which called us all holy priests, that the reformational idea came out, the priesthood of all believers, because the reformation fundamentally argued against this veneration of the saints in the medieval Catholic Church, where you had the saints, which are those who are venerated, they are of a higher class, and you had to maybe pray to the saints along with Jesus so that they might help you get closer to God. So there was a hierarchy in the medieval church of those who are, you know, the common people. Then there are those who are the holier people, the nuns, the priests. And then if you get holier than that, you, could, you might become a pope or you might become venerated as a saint. And then these are, there's a hierarchy of, of, a, of a natural class to a supernatural class. There was a ladder of righteousness up unto God, right? And 
the Reformation recovered these ideas here from Ephesians 2, from 1 Peter 2, that said this. Because Jesus has finished it all, his blood is so sufficient, away with all hierarchies. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or you were a hitman for the mafia. It doesn't matter if you were a prostitute or you were living a life of debauchery or you were living in ruthless pragmatism. It doesn't matter, friends, whatever your past is. It didn't, friends, it didn't matter if you had an abortion. It didn't matter that you were abused as a child. It didn't matter that you were living in a broken home. It didn't matter whatever your parents might have done or said to you. It didn't matter what kind of parent you once were. It didn't matter if you were once a monk, Luther is communicating. You are in Christ. You are a saint. You are a saint. You just, just feel the gravity of that, right? You might be coming to church today and you might be feeling to yourself, right? Oh, I, I, I've never feel, felt good coming to church. I've always felt condemned. That's why I've stopped coming to church for a while. Now you might be coming to church again and you're wondering to yourself, what am I even doing here? I know what I've been doing. I know my own secrets. I know my own sins. I know sins that, I, that, 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 that none of you ever heard of. Since that in every community group I've been trying to suppress, I've been coming up with all the safe answers when people ask me what you've been struggling with. Hear this. Saint, look up. Your Savior had done enough for you. You are now a child of God having full access, loved by the Father. Saint, equality of all believers. Saint, and this is remarkable because this is not just in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul, yes, is explicit about the gospel at every point, but he reiterates the same language in a different letter in 1 Corinthians. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians is it's, it's an, a letter addressed to the Corinthian church, and that letter is addressed to a church that was struggling with the most heinous of sins. You had a son having a sexual relationship with a stepmother, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have people abusing the Lord's Supper, communion, and they were getting drunk off of the wine. You have, you, have, you have people playing favoritism, divisive people, trying to divide up the church, saying that we gotta follow this teacher and not this teacher, ignoring Christ in the process. And Paul has the audacity, Paul has the remarkable audacity, the courage, the, the, the Almost, almost a crazy talk of opening the letter to the Corinthian church, struggling with all kinds of immorality, saying to them the first two verses, to the church in Corinthia, sanctified by God's saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus. Telling them now, and here's, in other words, here's Paul's motivation. For those of us who are struggling with the same sense again and again, no matter how heinous it is, remember who you are. Paul's admonition, in other words, isn't, isn't, isn't to tell you, yeah, you better be careful because you're going to go back. You're going you're gonna, to you're, you're be cast out, a stranger once. No, he says, 
again and again, right? And, and he's going to say that in Ephesians chapter 4 later. He's going to say, you are a child of light. This is behavior that shouldn't be a part of you anymore. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. Purge away all these sins from you. You are a beloved child of a brand new family. You're living as if you were never adopted. Remember your identity. This is who you are. You are a fellow saint. But Paul compounds this image, right? You're not just a saint in the individual sense. Paul makes sure that you know that your saintliness, your sainthood, is a communal understanding of it. Look at, it, look at that. You have, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're citizens as saints, and you're members of the household of God as saints. All right? Your fellow citizens, that's a national imagery. In other words, you're part of a new kingdom. You're part of a new nation. This is what identifies you now. No longer are you identified primarily by your ethnicity or your country. You're no longer identifying yourself as, I'm, I'm an American first, or I'm an Indonesian first, or I'm a Chinese first. No, you're, you're fundamentally saying, I'm a Christian first. I might be Singaporean or Dutch or Indonesian, but those things come second, third, fourth. In other words, my, my national identity is subordinated to the fact that I'm part of the kingdom of God, and now I live primarily by kingdom rules, not by my national rules. My conscience is tethered to a different kingdom now. Not only that, there's more intimate language of, of the household there. Your fellow citizens, so national language, and members of the household of God. In other words, you're, you're, you're a family. You're a family now. You're, again, so your identity is not dependent upon the family lineage that you came from. It didn't matter who your father was. It didn't matter what your children ultimately comes out to be. What's most foundational about you isn't your family line or heritage. But rather, this new family of God coming together. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26 that we read just now, right? All saints, by their, it's, it's a privilege and their unity, and it's a, it's a responsibility of them to take care of the household of God. Every single one of us has a responsibility as we're communing with one another to take care of each other's needs. That's a communal family language. That's intimate language. That means transparency, Right? There's a reason why you could never really put on a mask with your family because you know that there are family members <laughs> that have seen you getting your diapers changed. They've seen you when you were eight years old throwing temper tantrums. They saw you when you were playing Call of Duty until four in the morning. They've seen you at your worst in your college years. There's a real sense in which because they've seen you at your worst, there's no way you could put on a mask with them because you're vulnerable with them, right? And so this is what Paul is calling the church out to be. Member, this is why membership is utterly important. Why, why do you have membership? You know, in membership classes, we say the word members isn't in the Bible, but now I'm reconsidering because it says we're members of the household of God. So there it is. Be a member. The Bible says so. <laughs> we're members of the household of God, which means, friends, what is membership trying to communicate to you? Saints can't live on themselves. Saints have an outward-looking responsibility. Saints ought to be vulnerable with one another. 
We're supposed to come together, and who do we know who we should be accountable to? Who do we know we could be transparent with? Who do we know would be a safe place for us? That we know if we're vulnerable to them, they won't gossip about us, right? They know that we won't, we won't, we won't, we won't, we won't use these flaws against them. We know that we're for each other's good so that when we confess our deepest sins, we don't go around and tell them, oh, you ought to be condemned. I'm going to tell the whole world. I'm going to tweet about this. No. We tell one another these things because we know we're for each other's good and we want to build one another up. We want to build one another up. That's what it means to be called as a Christian. And, and C.S. Lewis has a wonderful little chapter called On Membership. And he argues in that um, little chapter that to be a member of a particular church, to be a member of the body of Christ, right? Uh, and that's another image that the Bible talks about. We're not just members of a household. We're members of a body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the leg, I don't need you. Every single part of the body is intrinsic to the body. It's important to the body. And Lewis says in that article that to be a member of the body of Christ doesn't just mean that you're a collection of people. You're not a collective. You're not just a brick upon brick. You're not just a bunch of marbles put together. And each marble is just interchangeable with the other, right? He argues very profoundly there, if you treat your sister like you're treating your dad, chaos is going to ensue. If the mother treats the daughter as if the daughter had the responsibilities of the father, the family is not going to work out. If the son looks to his brother only what his mother could do, the family breaks apart. In the same way, if you replace right, your, 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 your lungs with your heart, that's just not going to work out. In other words, there is something about an organic entity, about a family, that says that saints are not just interchangeable you know, little figures that you can, you can swap around, but rather every saint has a responsibility that is unique and, and, and a calling unto itself within the church. Whether it be in the world, some of us are lawyers, others of us are engineers, others of us are artists, others of us are in the media in some way, others of us are doctors by profession, right? We all have a role responsibility to do for our common good, and I'm, I bet you're glad that I'm not the one singing every morning. I'm glad I'm not the one singing every morning. You know, we have, in other words, members that function specific roles and specific designations, right? That means not everybody is called to do everything. Rest. Rest. You don't have to do everything. You have specific talents and giftings. And people will recognize where you fit in the member. As a family, you have a responsibility to do that. Rest. But also, pick up that responsibility. Have you been a member of a local church, but you've just been attending on Sunday morning? Maybe there's a place for you in mercy ministry. Maybe there's a place for you in community group. Maybe there's a place for you in music ministry. Whatever it might be in children's ministry. But you ought to think to yourself, if I'm not just a mere spectator, I'm a member of the household of God, and I'm just spectating, then you're not yet functioning as the body. You're not yet living out where you're supposed to be as a saint. Right? And I fear, I, I'm, I'm prolonging this point because I think this city needs the priesthood of all believers. Right? We're bereft of it. Okay? I, I've, I've ranted about this before. I, I, won't make, I won't take too much longer. Three minutes on this, all right? Okay? I hate, my, one of my pet peeves, one of my pet peeves 
in the city, living in the city, is, is when this culture calls just the pastors or the elders, hamba, hamba Tuhan. Oh, kamu mau jadi hamba Tuhan full time. Oh, pengorbanan yang sangat besar. And I'm like, hamba Tuhan? So what, are you a Christian? So you're not a hamba Tuhan. Kamu apa Tuhan? What, what kind, what? By the way, hamba Tuhan just means servants of God for the Caucasians here. I mean, for the English speakers, <laughs> right? I'm realizing now, like, the Indonesians are, like, leaning in. The Caucasians are like, what's he talking about? So there's, there's, there's a tradition in this culture that tends to say, that congregant members, kita ini orang-orang awam, we're just normal lay people. We don't make great sacrifices. But we pay the church, and they'll make the great sacrifices for us. We, we might become penunjang fisi, yeah, we're funders. So that their business life could be utterly secular, debauchery, ruthless pragmatism. And then you pay other people to make the sacrifices for you. You know what that is? That's Jewish Old Testament religion. You know what that is? That's medieval Roman Catholicism, where there's a secular and then there's a sacred. There's a natural world, there's a supernatural world. We just pay the priests, they'll do all the representing for us. We don't need to know the Bible. We don't need to live out holy lives. The servants of God would do that. Wrong. Expletive. Wrong. Because, friends, we're not just servants of God. You're saints of God. And, friends, not just the people up here are servants of God or saints of God. You all are. We all are. What excuse do you have? i got to move on. Third. Third, priest of all believers means you're standing equally on God's word, equally on the word of God. You're built on the, this is verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, all right? And whom the whole structure being joined together grows into holy temple in the Lord. Here's how Paul is telling us as a church, as a household of God, as a building, as a temple to the Lord, corporately, collectively together as a community is by standing on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And apostles and the prophets there uh, refers to the foundation of the Bible. The prophets refer to the Old Testament. The apostles refer to the New Testament. There's a foundation of truth that is utterly unchangeable and that is the foundational authority, the infallible rule of life and doctrine according to Westminster Confession of Faith. That is what feeds the whole building. That is what the whole building is standing upon. The authority of the Bible, in other words, stands above the authority of any man. The authority of the Bible is the unifying foundation behind every single believer. All right? That means every single believer is tethered. What's the unity under the diversity that, that make up the church here? The unity under diversity is the, is the mediatorship of Christ and the apostles and the prophets. It's the scriptures communicating Christ to you. That's what, we, that's what we stand on. That's the unity under which we stand on. And I've heard the objection that if you believe in the authority of the Bible, that's, man, that's just really badly oppressive. That's going to impinge upon our freedom, right? Oh, no, to the contrary. 
If you believe in the authority of the Bible, and that's the only thing binding your conscience, friends, that means no man, no tyranny, has the right or authority to bind your conscience. That means no pastor or elder or authority on earth can say to you and just simply pull rank, you have to obey to me simply because I am who I am. Simply because I'm, I'm, simply, I'm your pastor, listen. I'm your elder, listen. I'm, I, I am the one over you, listen. We can't just pull up our own authority and rank. In other words, every minister, every single Christian is bound to the word of God and so everyone has a common access to another authority, a higher authority. And that relativizes every single human authority on earth. Right? If you, you've ever read, you've taken history classes and you've read about the history of the, the, the American slavery, for example. Just, just one of the travesties of human history where uh, there was racial segregation and black Americans were being enslaved by white Americans in the American South, right? And you've seen all these movies and you've read all these histories. You, know, you watched 12 Years a Slave, for example, one of the most moving depictions of this. And you saw that these slave owners were quoting the Bible on the slaves and the slaves were reading the Bible. Have you ever thought to yourself, like, how can they be using this text to justify slavery? It doesn't make it, you've read the Bible, you've seen these depictions, like how in the world could they be using a document that is fundamentally about the equality of all believers? Fundamentally about, about the freedom that we have in Christ. How in the world could they be using this document to justify slavery? How? How? Especially when the Bible says both slaves and slave owners have a common Lord, namely Jesus. Both slaves and slave owners are commonly saved, equals therefore in Christ Jesus, treat one another as brothers. How, how can they do that? Well, I found out the answer. If you took a look at the 1807 edition of the Bible, the slave Bible it was called, the Bible was edited in 1807 to make sure that all the parts about the equality of all believers were taken out including Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. It was taken out. The whole book of Revelation was gone. Romans chapter 1 until 11, gone. The whole book of Philemon, which was addressed to a slave owner, to a slave, telling him explicitly, treat your slaves as they would your brother, gone. Not there. In other words, they specifically edited out portions of the Bible that gave any encouragement to slaves to retaliate against their masters. So anything that even had a hint of freedom and equality, eradicated, deleted, edited out. That tells you something about the Bible, doesn't it? And that's not just an apologetic reason because you're gonna hear people say, well, they used the Bible to justify slavery. Actually, they didn't. They didn't. But it also tells you the fundamental thrust of the Bible is if you're both standing on the word of God, you have an absolute basis that relativizes all human authority. Your conscience is tethered to God alone. If you know your Bible, you're not captive to any man. You're not captive to the traditions of your family. You now suddenly have a basis on which to stand. Parents, I can't follow on your business if it continues in this way. Sons, you must continue on living a different way. Daughters, you must bind your conscience to the word of God. Church, don't preach anything else except for God's word. 
equally stand on this. Put your elders into account. Put your community group leaders into account. Yes, scare your community group leaders. Quote the Bible on them, right? You can no longer be a victim to tyranny if the Bible is God's word. And that's what it means to believe in the priesthood of all believers. Finally, for fourth point, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You as a community have fellowship with God. You have responsibilities to you. You no longer, so again, just, just read, I'm gonna be really quick on this. You can't say in the church, here's where the Holy Spirit is really working. The elders, the pastors, the mercy ministry. I'm just a regular person. The same spirit that was with Christ Jesus is the same spirit that is in you. The same spirit that is in me or Tazar or Brett or Elias or anyone else that you might have seen up here is the same spirit that is in you. That is nothing special distinguishing us and you. Elders, members, Christians, young or old, we all have the same unifying spirit. Whatever formal distinctions we might have in vocation is relativized by the ultimate unity we have with the Holy Spirit. No more excuses. Fifth and last point. How? How did God do this? How in the world did God make strangers and aliens, immoral people like you and me, Jews and Gentiles getting along, forgiving one another, right? Paul, who murdered Christians, now telling Christians what to do. How in the world did God create a holy temple unto the Lord, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, a holy family unto the Lord, in a way that says, you and all your different histories, and all your different families, all your different ethnicities, you can come together and collectively, as one body, represent the holiness of God into this world. How in the world did God do that? Well, to do that, you've got to go to verse 16. And it's not printed in your bulletin, but you've got to go to verse 16, which is the basis on this. Because notice in verse 18, it starts with the, with the word for. For indicates a conclusion to an argument. And what did he say in verse 16, which led to the for in verse 18? He says there that Christ had made peace so that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. How did God do this? God did this fundamentally by killing hostility through the cross. What hostility is this referred to? Twofold hostility. Your hostility between you and one another. There's no way Gentiles could have been accepted by Jews without a hostility that was there that was, that was, that was, that was eradicated. There's no way sinners, in other words, could forgive one another in such a way where we're no longer just now tolerating one another, we're actually working and accepting one another. And saying to one another, I'll help you. We're achieving the same purposes. We're going to read the Bible together unless there's a hostility that isn't destroyed between us that allows us to work together. How is that hostility destroyed? That hostility is only destroyed between us if the second kind of hostility is first taken care of. That is the hostility between you and God. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian here, you have to realize this 
may be this comforting fact. You are not a friend of God. We are not naturally friends of God. That's not how the Bible depicts humankind. Humankind, apart from Christ, is not fundamentally in friendship with God, but is fundamentally in hostility against God. We run away from Him. We hate Him. And we deserve the punishment that is due for us. We know that deep, deep inside of us, we know that we're not yet the people that we're supposed to be. We don't just fall short of each other's standards. We fall short of our own standards, right? New Year's is going to come soon, and all of you are going to make New Year's resolutions, and a week later, you're going to give up. Because you know, deep inside, there's this gra- gravitational drag. There's this gravitational drag that tells you that even though you know you should just happily wash the dishes tonight. You're just going to sit there and play with your phone. Even though you know you ought to forgive this long enemy of yours, you, gotta, you, have to, you have to forgive your spouse day in and day out. It just feels so good to hold the bitterness in your heart. Even though you know that you ought to thank God for everything that you've ever had, you hardly ever think of Him, do you? And for that, there's hostility between us and God. Do you see that? And here's what allows us who are hostile to one another to now begin to forgive one another. There's nothing, nothing more humbling than to realize that both you and me, doesn't matter where we've come from, doesn't matter what our hurts are against one another, you and me are both equally sinners before a holy God. You and me are both in need of severe mercy. And here's the key. Here's the key to forgiving. Here's the key to working one another. Here's our key to to be one body. Do you realize that all of you have received a forgiveness that if you had received this forgiveness, you could only say to yourself, if this is how I've been forgiven, how dare I withhold forgiveness from my neighbor? If I was once an enemy of God and now I have been forgiven by God, and if my debt to God was so great that only infinite hell and torment could have paid for it, which is what Christ Jesus had done, How can I now not forgive the minuscule debts that my neighbor had paid for me? Friends, how do you become a body of priests? How do you all become members of one another? Knowing this, not only are you all equally called as saints, you're equally, first and foremost, before all of this, sinners in the hands of an angry God, but now forgiven in the hands of a loving Father in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, this is incredible news. This is news that allows slaves to cheer in joy and slave owners to repent and weep and for slaves and slave owners to embrace one another. This is what allows enemies to see one another and look in the face of one another and not say, here is my enemy, but rather here is a common sinner just like me. Here's what allows us to work together and not be jealous with those of us who might have different gifts from one another and not to compare one another in insecurities, but rather to say to one another, I shall be happy for that person because he's working in a way that I could never do. Here's a gospel that tells us we've been accepted by a loving father, no longer condemned. What a freedom. What a joy. 
how can it be that my God should die for me? Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Help us live in it. Amen.